0: Well, we're back from down under, so g'day, and uh, we had a great t- time down there ministering to the people in Perth, Australia. We're still trying to get over jet lag a little bit, but uh, God is good, and uh, we had some very fruitful ministry and got to know some neat people, made some new friends, and I was really blessed to being there. Please pray with me, and then we'll get into Genesis 1 for this morning. Father, we are grateful that we can come together as a corporate body of believers to consider your word, to hear you speak to us from the scriptures. Father, we're thankful for the Bible and we're thankful for all that you give us in the Bible. We're thankful that you have a word and though... The grass withers and the flower fades. Your word abides forever because your truth is settled forever in heaven. And though heaven and earth will pass away, not one jot or tittle will ever pass away from your law until all is accomplished. So, Father, we are thankful for that. We are thankful we have Bibles. And, Father, I pray that as we look at the first verse of the first book, of the Bible this morning, that Father, we would just understand some more about the significance of the Bible as a whole, about Genesis in particular, and about what it teaches us about you, the Creator. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. John MacArthur, in his book, The Battle for the Beginning, speaks of evolutionary philosopher Herbert Spencer, who was nominated for the Nobel Prize in the 1880s for various work he had done. Spencer uh, had, uh, by diligent study and uh, thought come to the conclusion that um, there were basically five ultimate scientific ideas which really defined the whole realm of scientific investigation. They were time, force, action, space, and matter. Yet MacArthur notes that Spencer made no great discovery, but merely found what is in the first verse of the Bible. Uh, Genesis 1, one says in the beginning, that is time, God, that is force, created, that is action, the heavens, that is space, and the earth, that is matter. So what Spencer studied, long and hard to discover, uh, anybody can discover if they just study the first verse of the Bible. Je- God is the uh, one who created time. It was in the beginning. And he is the ultimate force as he is all-powerful. He took action by creating all that exists, uh, the vast reaches of outer space and then filled outer space, uh, the vacuum of space with many material objects, stars and planets, comets and nebulae and things we're still discovering today. And so as we return this morning to the book of Genesis, uh, I mentioned when we looked at it the first time, there's so much introduction that can be done to the book of Genesis, I'm going to kind of spread it out, so uh, we are going to get some for these first several sermons, so um, you'll just have to bear with me. But there's so much that needs to be said, because Genesis is really one of the more foundational books in all the Bible, because all the critical doctrines of Christianity find their foundation in Genesis. Not only that, um, Genesis... Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And not only that, Genesis is the most attacked book of the Bible. And not only that, there is a competing worldview that says Genesis is a lie. That is the view of evolution. A lie which contradicts the scripture saying the world is billions of years old uh, rather than what the Bible says, a few thousand. Uh, That everything came from nothing. Nothing. Rather than coming from God. That life came from non life, rather than life coming from a living God. That the law of cause and effect doesn't apply, nor does the law of the second law of thermodynamics and entropy, though they have never been proven to be false. The fact is, evolution is a religion. It is faith based anti God philosophy created by men who want to sin with an easy conscience. There is no Zero scientific proof for evolution. It cannot be integrated with the Bible either. Genesis was written, though, by Moses, and Moses uh, was God's man to write God's first book. Actually, the first five books of the Bible, which are called things like the Pentateuch or uh, the books of Moses or the law of Moses or the Torah, all of these phrases describe these first five books. And in Genesis, we have God explaining the sequence of events or the history that led up to this people Uh, being in Egypt, who would eventually become, in the book of Exodus, the nation of Israel through whom the word of God would come and through whom the Messiah and salvation from sin would come. But let me just ask you this. How do you suppose that Moses knew what happened in Genesis chapter 1? Obviously, he wasn't born then. And uh, it was a long time before him. And even if they got some things and chiseled them into the stone, there was a flood. And so how in the world could he know what happened well liberal theologians always try to find a natural explanation because they don't believe in miracles they don't believe in the inspiration of scripture and so they are trying to find natural information uh that kind of say well maybe there was written tradition you know tablets of stone that were passed down and you know noah took a small library with him on the ark and then um that was passed down and that you know that could be true. Probably not. Um, then they talk about oral tradition, which is most certainly is true because, uh, you know, people tell other people about things. Uh, it could be that oral tradition was what worked for a long time. And then after that, uh, things were written down. And, and Moses, we know from Acts 7.22, was uh, was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. So we know that he had the, the best education that could be had at the time. And he spent a lot of time with the Israelites. So Surely he got some oral tradition passed down to him. Maybe some of it was written. But really, there's no problem at all because the Bible says that God spoke to Moses. And so you don't need to worry about, well, you know, maybe the records were corrupted or maybe the oral tradition kind of got messed up. You know, you've played that game where you whisper some phrase into someone's ear and it goes around the circle and everybody whispers it, and by the time it comes around, it's nothing like it was. It's totally different. Well, we don't have to worry about that because the Bible is the inspired word of God. Now, when you hear the word inspired, you might ask yourself, what does that mean? Because sometimes we're inspired to clean our garage. Or we're inspired to do some new recipe or we're inspired to whatever, uh, make paint some masterpiece or something. And so we kind of have an idea or some energy or whatever. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about the Bible is inspired. It's not like a bunch of people in the ancient past had good ideas and wrote them down and now we have a Bible. No, the biblical dictionary, a new Bible dictionary, defines inspiration in these words: quote, Biblical inspiration may be defined as God superintending human authors, so that using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded without error his message to man in the words of their original writings in the Bible. God superintended, but did not dictate. His superintendence was sometimes very direct and sometimes less direct, but always active. So that he guarded the writers from writing inaccurately. He used human authors, including their own individual styles. They were not stenographers receiving dictation. The result of this combination of human and divine authorship was a record that in the original manuscripts was without error, end quote. So Calvary Bible Church believes in what is called, and get ready for this, I'm just going to like dump a whole truckload of jargon on you right now, um, verbal, plenary, inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility of the Bible. I'm sure you've said that recently. Um, you probably sounded like something from Charlie Brown's teacher, you know, Mom Mom and that was it. Uh, but there's a reason for this jargon. What happened was is is early on, and uh, mostly in the last about hundred years, what kept happening is there uh, a, a a church would be started, a seminary would be started, like Yale Seminary. You ever heard of that? Um, uh, uh, Harvard D- Divinity School. Uh, Pretty much all the Ivy League schools were all started because um, people wanted to train pastors to preach the word of God. Think about that. Uh, they don't do that anymore, by the way. Um, and so what happened is, is all, people would start these Christian institutions. And then they would say to professors or pastors who were coming in to pastor the church, do you believe the Bible? And they go, of course I believe the Bible. But they meant different things. Some said they believed the Bible was true, but only the original copies penned from the hand of the original authors. And that since that time, there was a whole bunch of errors and we had to kind of pick and choose what we thought was correct. Others said, yes, we believe it is true. But what they meant is that the Bible has truth in it, but also many false parts. Others said yes they believe the Bible was true but more in an existential way that yeah you can read the Bible and find truth for you and I can read the Bible and find truth for me and even though our truths may contradict it's truth so yeah I believe the Bible. So these so-called Bible believers were infiltrating churches, seminaries, Christian colleges and the like. And were corrupting them, turning them away from the word of God and eventually causing them to go liberal as the whole landscape of of America and really all of Europe uh, gives testimony to. And this is why uh, different people begin to rise up and say, okay, we need to be more specific exactly about what we believe. So then came all this jargon, each term being very specific so that if somebody came and said, yeah, you know, I'm interested in being your pastor, you could try and, you know, run them through a a fine sieve, a very thin filter with a very fine grid to make sure that they're actually what you're looking for. Nelson's new Bible dictionary defines these terms in uh, these words. Two terms often used in discussion of inspiration are in the Bible are plenary and verbal. Plenary, a term meaning full or complete. It means that each book, chapter, and paragraph of the Bible is equally derived from God. Verbal inspiration emphasizes the truth that the wording of the text, as well as the ideas conveyed, is supernaturally inspired by God, Through the Holy Spirit. Inerrancy is a term used along with plenary verbal inspiration to convey the view that the Bible's teaching is true on everything to which it speaks. The words of scripture in the original writings teach the truth without any admixture of error. The Bible is not just a useful body of human ideas. It makes clear the mind of God himself. Infallibility is a term often used as a synonym for inerrancy. However, the root meaning of infallibility is not liable to fail in achieving its purpose. Truth or inerrancy is a... Affirmed of the content of the Bible, infallibility refers to the effectiveness of the wording in conveying reliable ideas as well as the effectiveness of those ideas when used by the all-powerful Holy Spirit, end quote. So if someone were to ask you, so I was reading about you know verbal plenary inspiration, you could say, well, I know what that is. Verbal means the Bible in all of its parts and all of its sentences and paragraphs as well as its ideas are all inspired. Plenary means in all of its breadth, its height, its length, small parts and big parts are all inspired. Inspiration means that the Holy Spirit superintended human authors so that They wrote down with their own styles, own thoughts, own vocabulary and own ideas, the very word of God without error. Inerrancy means the Bible is without error in the doctrines that it teaches. It does not mean that there are no differences in the ancient manuscripts because there are. When you copy a book this big, you're going to make mistakes. And that's what we find. There are about 2% differences in the ancient manuscripts. But 1.5% of those are very easily dis, you know, fixed. They're like some guy wrote the same word twice. And you can just see, well, he wrote it twice. He was tired and you just cross one out you know that that second word doesn't you know he just stuttered with his pen um sometimes they wrote whole sentences over again so there's really only about one half of one percent differences in the ancient manuscripts where scholars say you know should it be fleas or flies in the hebrew there's no vowel pointings there there's no vowel so they later on added vowel pointings but there's no so you, what if you just had fls there was a plague of FLS. Somebody says, well, man, there must have been a lot of flies. I, no, I think that's fleas. No, 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 flies. No, it's fleas. Okay, well, uh, inerrancy says that no major doctrine is affected. You know, flies and fleas, it's fine. You know, if you want to have a plague of bugs, it's fine. You're not going to go to hell because you got the bug wrong. Um, the whole point is, is that no... Doctrine has been affected. So inerrancy just says that what we have is a preserved Bible and it contains all the truths that God wants us to know about. And because the Bible is infallible, it always accomplished what God purposes for it. For instance, Isaiah fifty-five eleven reminds us, So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. That is the idea behind infallibility. God's word accomplishes God's purposes. So let me just give you a few key texts uh, on inspiration. You might want to write these down. You can look at them maybe for... Uh, You know, your quiet time this week. These are some great texts because in these texts we see how men wrote the Bible and God wrote the Bible. Because you'll hear a lot of times when you're talking to people, well, the Bible says, well, yeah, that's just men just wrote that. You're right. But there's another part too. Listen to this. Numbers chapter 24 verses 2 and 3. Balaam, uh, who is kind of a prophet for hire, is hired by the enemies of Israel to curse Israel. So he gets up on a bluff overlooking the camp of Israel, and this is what we read. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he took up his discourse and said, and then he ended up blessing Israel. And his enemies say, hey, 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 what'd you do? He says, I'm sorry. Uh, Something came over me, and I ended up blessing them. I'm sorry. And this happened a couple times. times. Um, the Holy Spirit overcame him. So he ended up giving a blessing and rather than a curse. In 2 Samuel 23 verses 2 through 3, David explains how he ended up writing inspired psalms and says, The spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said the rock of Israel spoke by me or spoke to me. And then he goes on to say what God told him. So he wrote the psalm and God wrote the psalm. They were David's words and they were God's words. The prophet Ezekiel, uh, God said in Ezekiel 3, verses, verse 37, but when I speak to you, I will open your mouth and you will say to them, thus says the Lord God, he who hears, let him hear. And he who refuses, let him refuse for they are a rebellious house. So God says, I am going to open your mouth And you're going to say to them, thus says the Lord. And of course, if you've ever read the Bible, that phrase appears all over the place. Why? Because it's God's word. Zechariah speaks of the rebellion of Israel against the Lord. And Zechariah chapter 7 verse 12, they made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear the law and the words, listen to this, which the Lord of Hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, a great wrath from the Lord of Hosts came upon them. The whole point is, is that God, through those former prophets, had the Holy Spirit move so those prophets spoke the very word of God to them. So that when they were, they were disobeying the prophets, they were disobeying God Himself. Remember when Jesus confronted the religious leaders up on the Temple Mount, and remember when uh, he gave them the little riddle to stump them, to drive them to conclusion that he was the Messiah and God, and he you know quoted Psalm one ten verse one: "The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet." He says this in Matthew twenty two verse forty three three to the religious leaders. Then how does David, in the spirit? call him Lord, saying, and then he quotes the verse. David was in the spirit, and that's why his psalms are inspired. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is inspired, or literally God-breathed, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Peter, in 2nd Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, says, But know this first of all that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own uh, interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's what the Bible is. The Bible is the product of men who were moved by the Holy Spirit and spoke to men from God. That's why the Bible is called the Word of God. So the reason Moses was able to write about things he didn't witness, which happened many years before him, even at the very beginning of time, is because the Holy Spirit supplied him with the facts. Either that or God told him directly. We know this because God appeared to Moses when they left Egypt crossed the Red Sea, camped at Mount Sinai, and wandered around the wilderness, a God would speak to Moses. We read this, for instance, in Exodus chapter 33, verse 11, where it says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. And if you've ever had Mormons come to your house, they love that verse. They love that verse. Why? Because that verse says, See? Just like God appeared to Joseph Smith. And then you have to say, well, let's first of all look at the verse. Notice where the emphasis is. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. Notice the indicator of the simile. Just as. Like in like manner. Kind of like this. As a man speaks to his friend. It does not say he spoke to him face to face. Like a friend, but like, just as or in similar, similar ways. You say, Well, how do you know that? I mean, what do you, you just keep reading. Read chapter 34. Moses then says, Show me your glory. I want to see you. And God says, You can't see me and live. I'll tell you what, I'll stick you in the cleft of the rock. And then a hymn was written. But Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 4, Deuteronomy 35, verse 10, uh, all speak of God speaking face-to-face with Moses in that same way, dialoguing with Moses. The glory, the Shekinah glory would appear, and God would actually speak to Moses from the cloud of glory. So, if you look in your Bibles at Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, where Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us what happened at the very beginning of all things. The Word of God says, "...in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness." And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Now last time we learned that Genesis 1-1 can be broken down into several very easy to understand parts. If you just look at the verse, you'll notice that at the beginning it has the time of creation. In the beginning, then the subject of the verse, God. Then what God did, he created, And finally, what God created, the heavens and the earth. We only looked at the time of creation last time and learned that creation happened in the beginning. In the beginning of what? In the beginning of everything that is. The the beginning of what Herbert Spencer discovered, uh, which was time, force, action, space, and matter. But even more than that, the beginning of spiritual realms, the beginning of angels and living creatures in heaven, the beginning of all that is besides God happened in the beginning. The beginning of time, the beginning of the laws, the scientific laws which govern God's creation and and it's very difficult to talk about god before that time because before is a time word or an eternity past is a time word we don't even, we don't even have any words to describe what it means before that cuz if i were to ask you uh you know so what was there before creation and you might say well nothing and i would say well what's nothing And then you would say, nothing is, and then you'd tell me what it is. It's something. See, there wasn't even any of that. There wasn't even any nothing. There was God and only God and the vastness of his being, self-sufficient, self-contained, and all that we know, all the material and spiritual, everything didn't exist. There was just God and God alone. Stephen Charnock, in his Existence and Attributes of God, says, quote, The counsels of boundless being are not to be scanned by the brain of a silly worm that has breathed but a few minutes in the world. Since eternity cannot be comprehended in time, it is not to be judged by a creature of time. End quote. Charnock defines the eternity of God with these words, Eternity is a perpetual duration, which is neither beginning nor end. Time has both. Those things we say are in time that have beginning, grow up by degrees, have succession of parts. Eternity is contrary to time and is therefore a permanent and immutable state, a perfect possession of life without any variation. It comprehends in itself all years, all ages, all periods of ages. It never begins. It endures after every duration of time and never ceases. It does as much to outrun time as it went before the beginning of it. Time supposes something before it, but there can be nothing before eternity. Otherwise, it would not be eternity, end quote. And you start talking about stuff like that, it just turns your brain into mush. It's just too much to even figure out how God could be. He just is, okay? He just is. He exists before everything, before in the beginning of Genesis 1.1. There was nothing else. As the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1.10, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. God existed perfectly content within himself, needing nothing. But in his perfect and infinite wisdom, in his power, he decided to get more glory for himself and decided to create the heavens and the earth and all they contain and to put little finite creatures on this one little blob next to this one little speck of light in the vastness of what we think is pretty much infinite space, the universe, and he decided to play out a plan of redemption on that tiny little planet. James Montgomery Boy says, quote, We may want to bring God down into our little microscope where we can examine him and subject him to the laws of matter of cause and effect, which we can understand, but fret as we might, God does not conform to our desires. He confronts us as the one who was in existence before anything we can even imagine, who will be there after anything we can imagine. Ultimately, it is he alone with whom we have to do. So, contrary to the popular reigning view that everything came from nothing, it seems kind of absurd to even have to say that. Everything did not come from nothing. Think about it. Have you ever had anything come from nothing? Everybody knows that's not true, unless you're an evolutionist. Though evolutionists mock faith, their faith is far beyond ours and irrational at best. Evolutionists have no answer for where everything came from. They have two ideas. There was a big bang. A big bang of what? Where did the big bang come from? Who lit the fuse? They don't know. They have no idea some believe that matter has always existed so they deny the law of cause and effect they deny the law the second law of thermodynamics and entropy and they say that yes matter has always existed and therefore they make matter god and that's why when you're reading sometimes in different books you'll read about materialist a materialist is somebody who thinks that matter has always existed and they think that you can just have dirt and rocks and chemicals and from Non-life can come life, which has never been observed. It's not scientific. It never happens. It never will happen because only one person has the power to create life. Only life can beget life. And so God is the one who created life. And when you look in Genesis 1, if you just scan, I, I I went through and looked at all the things that God did. It's amazing What a major player God is in Genesis 1. Listen to this. In verse 1, 21 and 27, God created. Verse 2, God was moving. Verses 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, 24, and 26, God said. And verse 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, 25, and 31, God saw. And verse 4, 6, 7, 14, and 18, God separated. Verse 5, 8, and 10, God called. Verse 7, 16, and 25, and 31, God made. Verse 17, God placed. Verse 22, and 28, God blessed. So that the end product, according to verse 31, God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. I mean, God is all over Genesis 1. So when you look at verse 1, the text says, In the beginning, God. We have looked at the time of creation, and now this morning I just want to just begin to introduce you to God, the God of creation. The word used here for God is the word Elohim. And it's an interesting word because in the Hebrew it has a masculine plural ending. There are several words in Hebrew that have this ending, and they aren't quite sure why. Usually, you have a, a masculine singular ending for something that's singular, but here God, who is one, has a plural ending. You have one cherub, and you have two cherubim. You always put the I M, that is the indicator of masculine plural. So here we have Elohim. And you think, well, why is that? Well, some have said, well, because God is a composite entity. He has a lot of facets, which is true. A lot of attributes, which is true. And we can see that uh, as we study the Bible. We also know that the same word Elohim, when the context dictates it, is translated judges sometimes or gods, as in the gods of the heathen, or angels The shortened form of the word El is tacked onto a whole bunch of other words to make all these other names of God. For instance, you have El Elyon, the Lord Most High, El Ahad, the One God, El Anet, God of Truth, El Shaddai, God All-Sufficient, etc. They're just all the way through the scriptures. So this word is is an interesting word. So it does describe a multifaceted God, a God of many attributes, many characteristics. It also could be an allusion to the Trinity. If you notice, not only is God mentioned in verse one, but verse two says the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. So right off the bat, hey, there's the spirit right there. And. If you look down at verse 26 of chapter 1, notice what it says there where God says, let us make men in our own image. Now, let me ask you, before any people were created, who was God? what was going on there? God is speaking with himself. Let us do this. Do you, do you ever say that? You know, you need to mow the lawn. You look in the mirror and go, let us mow the lawn unusual isn't it it's interesting it's almost like there's more than one person in god later in genesis chapter 11 verse 7 god again says concerning the tower of babel come let us go down there and confuse their language so right there we're, we have illusions of uh plural deity not only that jesus is mentioned in genesis three fifteen as the one who had crushed the serpent's head that's where the messiah the savior the deliverer is mentioned and though the doctrine of trinity isn't fully developed until the new testament we can see here the plural name of god the spirit in verse 2 the let us and In 126 and 117, we see that there is this plurality that is beginning later to be developed. And we know that the God um, uh, of creation is a triune God. So if somebody were to come to you and say, so what what member of the Trinity actually did creation? The answer is yes, all three. We know this for several reasons. Uh, For instance, speaking of the Spirit, Job says in Job 33 verse 4, the Spirit of God... Has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. The psalmist says of the creatures of the earth in Psalm 104, verse 30, You send forth your spirit, and they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. When it comes to Jesus, the New Testament is very explicit about him being the creator. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. We know that the Word, which was with God and was God in the beginning... Is none other than Jesus Christ, because verse 14 goes on to say, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Not only that, verse 10 says of Jesus, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. So Jesus is the creator of the world as well as the Holy Spirit. One of the very clearest texts is in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. If you want to turn there, Colossians, this is a very comprehensive verse. I think one of the most clear and comprehensive texts on Jesus as creator found anywhere in the Bible. Paul is arguing for the supremacy of Christ in the book of Colossians. And he says this, starting in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So those two verses are very comprehensive, and these are the things they speak of. One, Jesus is the creator of all things. Two, Jesus created all things in the heavens. Three, Jesus created all things on the earth. Four, Jesus created all things visible, which includes all we can see. And five, Jesus created all things invisible, those things in the spiritual realm. Specifically, six, he created angels and spiritual beings indicated by thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, which are all designations for angelic hierarchies. Then also, um, he repeats himself, Paul repeats himself just to make sure we, we haven't missed it here, that all things have been created through him and for him. And then in verse 17, Paul states two more facts that contribute to Jesus as creator. Saying eight, he is before all things, which means he is preeminent, eternal, the greatest. And finally, and, uh, he says in verse 17, in him All things hold together, which means that Jesus not only created all, every, and each thing, visible and invisible, spiritual realm or physical realm, but that he sustains, holds together everything that exists. He is the one who who holds all the atoms into place that baffles scientists. There's all these little microscopic charges inside atoms that hate each other, but they're clinging on to each other. It's like, why is that? And if you can just take one of those atoms and split it, bang, a lot of power is released and you have an atom bomb. There's so much power in, you know, the wood of this desk, it'd blow up the world if you could split all the atoms. And yet God, the scriptures say, holds all those things together. Christ holds all those things together. But not only does it say that the Holy Spirit was active in creation and Jesus is active in creation... For instance, the the elders fall down at Jesus' throne and say this in Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, our Lord, and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. The New Testament also says the Father is creator. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6 says, Yet as for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. He says the exact same thing of the Father and Jesus as both being the creator from whom all things come. The New Testament also makes it clear that God, in general, is the creator. Ephesians three nine is just one example of many. God who created all things. So when we look at Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, and it says, In the beginning, God, we have packed into that the eternal life all-powerful, all-knowing God, the everlasting God of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who together spoke everything into existence that exists. Now, we might think that because Genesis 1-1 is the first verse of the Bible and records, uh, you know, the creation of all things, there is nothing to discuss before Genesis 1-1. However, there is. Except we don't have time. Pray with me. You'll just have to come back next week. Father, we come before you just glad we were able to look a little bit more at one more word in Genesis. Father, there is so much here for us about your word, about Genesis, about what you did. We're excited to learn more about you. To learn about the God of creation, the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who before anything was determined to create all that exists out of nothing. Father, we want to worship you. We want to praise you. We want to honor you with our lives. May we do that this morning. And Father, we just ask that we would leave here praising you and thanking you that you are our God. We ask this in Jesus' name.